I find it very interesting that in the Wall Street Journal a week ago, Monday, there was an op-ed by a former U.S. ambassador uh, whose son-in-law was killed in the Brussels bombing. So all condolences to the ambassador for that loss. But it was interesting in the rallying cry he issued about the forces of civilization gathering to defeat the forces of barbarism, he wants to identify the enemy and what they're against. And so he says, let's be clear. This fight is not only against America and Europe, and it is not against Christianity. Well, were that true, there would be no need for such an organization as in defense of Christianity, which there emphatically is. And we're very privileged to have our speaker here tonight, and we're also very pleased to have the co-founder of this group and its president, Tufik Baklini, with us in the back of the room. Thank you for coming. And uh, other members of the staff, Louis Mikhail from Iraq, who's an advisor to IDC, is with us this evening. Very happy to have you here. Uh, now, Andrew Dorn is, as I mentioned, the co-founder of In Defense of Christians, and he remains a senior advisor to the group. IDC is a nonprofit organization that advocates for the protection and preservation of Christians in the Middle East. As you know, this organization, or if you don't know, I know Andrew will tell you tonight, played an absolutely essential and key role in bringing um, attention to the issue so that when Congressman Fortenberry introduced the bill in the House of Representatives declaring a, 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 a sense of the House that there is a genocide in the Middle East, it was introduced at the IDC conference, at which I was privileged, privileged to be present at the time last year. And as you know, an extraordinarily unique event happened fairly recently when the House of Representatives passed that resolution unanimously. In addition to which, Secretary Kerry and the State Department subsequently declared genocide or designated uh, what is happening there, a genocide. However, only after the evidence of that genocide was presented by IDC to the State Department in a nearly 300-page report, which IDC did in concert with um, the Knights of Columbus. And that, I know, is what Andrew is going to address this evening. I just want to point out, being a Knight of Columbus, in their recent magazine, they point to a poll that they commissioned in which it, the majority of Americans say Christians face genocide in the Middle East. So the, that message has gotten out, and it has gotten out in large part because of this wonderful organization in defense of Christians. Uh, just a few more words about Andrew He's published dozens of articles about U.S. foreign policy and human rights with the focus on the Middle East. 
He previously served at the U.S. Department of State and the Bureau of International Organizations, for which my condolences, <laughs> on the Executive Secretariat of the U.S. National Commission for UNESCO. He'll be talking to us tonight about Christian genocide, evidence for its designation, and saving Christianity in Iraq. Please join me in welcoming Andrew Dorn. Thank you very much, and, and thank you for, for having me and for that kind introduction, Bob. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here at the Westminster Institute. And, um, and uh, you know, looking around the room and seeing a friend and uh, a victim of genocide, his family is a victim of genocide, here in the room with us, Louis Michal, uh, who was a friend and comrade on the ground steering me around some, on several trips in some dangerous places, and now he's here in our home. Uh, and his family is here seeking, seeking asylum, if I may. And, um, you know, we'll, I suppose we'll come to this a little bit later, but this is uh, um, the greatest evil, I think, on the planet unleashed now before us with, with ISIL. And, um, and the victims are uh, not only our brother and sister Christians, but uh, our brother and sister human beings, uh, Sunni and Shia Muslims, uh, Yazidis, um, all, all of those people who lay um, in the path of ISIL, defenseless, and, uh, and unfortunately, I'm afraid this caliphate's not not go not going away anytime soon. Um, it is it is something of an injustice, uh, I think, to hopefully a, a small one, but an injustice to be uh, credited with with so much. Where I whereas I feel as though I've been sitting back, watching so many people do so many remarkable things, and. Uh, of course, great credit to Secretary Kerry, um, Ambassador Rabbi David Saperstein, uh, a friend and hero who's led the way on this uh, Knox Thames at the State Department, and of course, Congressman Jeff Fortenberry and Congresswoman Anna Eshoo, um, with their legislation dropped September 9th, 2015, um, which, as you mentioned, Congressman Fortenberry announced at the National Press Club the day we launched our um, second event. And six months to the day, we were honored to have the report published with the Knights of Columbus, who I think are kind of the, the cavalry coming to the rescue in this story. I, I think it was their, uh, their effort. They were, they were told by a state, we just simply do not have the evidence to declare genocide. Go get it. And uh, at that, most people would have said, well, I suppose that's the end of it. Well, they went and got it. And they came back. And it was so persuasive and, and as they successfully drove home, the point was that the, uh, the standard was probable cause, as I'm sure you all know, for, um, for genocide, which, which essentially, essentially means uh, establishing reasonable grounds, a reasonable basis. Um, and if you read the upwards of 300 pages of the report, um, and, I, and I hasten to add that many other NGOs did heroic and wonderful work gathering and documenting these atrocities on the ground. And that is also uh, adopted and, uh, and incorporated by reference in this report. It is worth reading. It's not nighttime reading. Um, I was rereading it again today, and uh, uh, it's deeply unsettling. And, and, um, and I think anyone who's spent any time in that part of the world, you know, for whom it's real, um, and we have, again, um, in our midst, someone who fled his homeland, his ancestral homeland, to be here with us, 
it's very real. Um, I just met for the first time today Louise's uh, daughter, who's what, four years old, five years old? And, and you, you know, walked away and I wondered, I, God, my God, I hope she doesn't have any memories of any of this. So, um, there are some people uh, not in the room uh, who certainly deserve recognition, uh, although if the camera weren't rolling, I'd skip over them. Um, Bob Destro, uh, the indefatigable uh, professor who uh, spent time working on the language. Um, Dr. Stanton, um, the many Hill staffers who did just such a wonderful job putting in the overtime to see through so much of this. And of course, as I mentioned, the Knights and uh, IDC's own staff uh, who was... Uh, overworked and uh, in the interests of not revisiting salary negotiations, I won't add <coughs> underpaid, but uh, since they may be present. Uh, but we, we really have an amazing team, and um, I was talking to Marty uh, in the hallway before coming in. Uh, one of the great things I think that we've seen certainly over the last six months is uh, the various groups of uh, Christian, ad those advocates, uh, organizations and individuals um, who have given their voice to, to speak out on behalf of the Christians of the Middle East, working in much greater unity. Um, I was looking over my notes, and I, I was looking at something, and I thought, well, I was very pessimistic about that, and it happened. Well, I was very pessimistic about this, and it happened. I was pessimistic about the genocide resolution. Uh, I, I, was I was pessimistic that it would even get to the floor, and then it passed unanimously. And then I said, well, okay, well, we have to plan for... Secretary of State's never going to declare genocide for Christians, so we have to plan for this to move on accordingly. And then eight days later, he does. So, not that I'm ceasing to be a pessimist, but I, 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 increasingly I find myself thinking uh, of, of myself as what uh, the late Benedict Groeschel would call a, a hopeful pessimist. And I think maybe hopeful pessimism is the attitude we should bring to the, the question of the Christians in the Middle East, because uh, now we have before us genocide declared. And the next question that everyone's been asking, of course, is what next? So now what? Um, and as many have said, now we're just coming to the starting line. Now what do we do? And, um, and, and, and I will uh, come to this. I think the answer is very, very clearly uh, a special autonomous zone, a protected zone, whatever I don't want to get into semantics, whatever we want to call it, that is the concept that we're talking about. And this haven in Iraq is key, not only to help save Christianity in Iraq, we need to have a model across the Middle East as these nation states continue to disintegrate and to fall apart, um, falling back into sectarian violence. The, uh, the report, as I mentioned, is, uh, and I have a copy here if you don't mind reading my Markups, and we have some. I think Kirsten uh, has brought some, and the Knights, of course, have many, and it's available online uh, at indefenseofchristians.org and on the Knights of Columbus website. Uh, I think 286 pages uh, in a PDF, and uh, at a minimum, I think it, if you don't want to take the whole thing, I think it merits reading the executive summary, um, which is um, well crafted and, and uh, very uh, persuasive. And I think the standard clearly was met. Uh, and I say that because ISIL is an organization that is self-defined and self-proclaimed as a genocidal organization. Uh, so there isn't a great deal of dispute. Um, one concern I have 
And I think most in the room will remember 1994, uh, the Rwandan genocide. There was a moment when, the, as heads were being lopped off and people were being slaughtered on, almost, on, on li almost in real time, uh, this descent into a semantic debate which had the effect of, of being thoroughly dehumanizing. And one of the, the fears, one of the things I was pessimistic about was that this was going to descend into that, and that it was going to be this back and forth. Well, is this genocide or is this mere crimes against humanity? Because crimes against humanity, of course, are tolerable. Well, of course they're not. Uh, the, uh, what, what Assad has done in Syria certainly constitutes crimes against humanity. Now, by the legal definition, does it meet the threshold of genocide? I think probably not. But let's, let's just suppose that that's the case for the sake of argument. Mere crimes against humanity is, is certainly sufficient to command the outrage of the entire interna international community, and one would hope compel them to action. Uh, what action precisely? Um, I, I think we have models for uh, faux nation states being deconstructed, and the best model that, that we have is Richard Holbrook's uh, 1995 Dayton Peace Accords, which uh, saw the international community mobilized to end genocide, in that case against uh, Muslims, in the former Yugoslavia, and to see the establishment of zones of a zone of separation monitored by an international, uh, uh, not peacekeeping, but peace-enforcing force, um, led by NATO and the United States, principally the French, the British, and the Americans, 20,000 Americans, um, effective January 1st, uh, 1996. Uh, we don't see any sort of leadership on the part of the United States to mobilize the international community and our so-called allies in the region to put this conflict to an end. On the contrary, we see where um, we see where the Turks, who have played a very dangerous uh, game since 2010, 2011. To, uh, to rankle Bashar Assad, letting Nusra uh, move freely ac across that border. And now that violence is coming home to roost, and that was inevitable. Um, in the Gulf states, we see tremendous fear. Um, I think I've used the uh, analogy that Thomas Jefferson once used uh, of holding the wolf by the ears. And this is essentially the relationship between Wahhabism and the violent extremism that has come forth from the Sunni Gulf states. And, uh, and I also hasten to add that our government's response to this has been woefully inadequate for years. We have known the funding and ideological sources of Al-Qaeda, of Al-Nusra, the Al-Qaeda affiliates, and even the Islamic State. And we have done virtually nothing about it. Billions of dollars diverted from wealthy individuals, perhaps with the knowledge and consent of certain people in the government, but certainly um, it, it's known, and it's known that the many of the transactions took place through Kuwaiti banks. And this is when Al-Qaeda Iraq was, in a, in a conversation with somebody recently, um, we were talking about the parallels with, okay, hesitate to jump into this, but with the Irish Republican Army, when in 1972, I believe, Bloody Sunday, 
They were less than 100. And then some wildly imprudent uh, judgment on behalf of some British soldiers who were there actually to protect the Catholics um, led to the death of 13, the deaths of 13 Catholic um, civil rights protesters, resulting with the um, the enlistment of thousands uh, of young Catholic men into the Irish Republican Army almost overnight. Um, now it's the, the, the same inciting event did not exist, but Al Qaeda, Iraq in 2010 in the west of Anbar province was relatively obsolete. And then the Syrian civil war came, the Arab Spring came, the revolt against Assad, Assad's uh, thuggish regime crushing, um, murdering children essentially, and um, sparking uh, a revolt among Sunnis. And I, I think reasonable minds may differ about uh, whether or not there was any real hope of a moderate uh, Sunni rebel force emerging, but now it does appear pretty clearly and convincingly, I think, that the overwhelming majority of those on the, the, the rebel um, faction tend to be somewhere on the Islamist spectrum, and, and the two most powerful groups, of course, of course are uh, ISIL and, and Nusra, who have competing ideologies and interests, but uh, I don't think this is a case where we can say the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, so, uh, yesterday, I, I heard former Congressman Frank Wolf speak before the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission, along with Carl Anderson, um, Supreme Knight of the Knights of Columbus. And uh, former Congressman Wolf was, as always, um, unafraid. And, and, he sat, and he sat there in his chair, and, and he said, we know where the funding sources are coming from, and our government is not doing enough about it. And... Um, and so, a man of great courage um, to say that. And I think we saw over the past week where the Speaker of the House and the President of the United States um, feel somewhat inadequate to um, even represent the interests of the survivors of murdered victims of 9-11, uh, simply passing legislation to... Uh, pursue those parties who may have contributed to 9-11. And there's an $800 billion debt held over our head as a nation, like the sword of Damocles. And I think it, it really prompts the question, how did we as a nation, uh, the United States of America, how are we uh, somehow beholden to this, frankly, very extreme uh, regime in, in the Gulf? This is, this is one of the questions that's going to baffle historians about how we got ourselves starting in the 1970s into this mess. From 1975 to 1995, Saudi Arabia spent more money exporting Wahhabism than the Soviet Union did throughout the entirety of the Cold War. And that's just pre-9-11. Now just imagine how many terrible regimes we might have given those trillions of dollars in wealth to who would have done less harm starting with the Soviets. Um, so this is, this is the great conundrum before us, and we have not yet uh, come up with a solution. I, I was having a conversation a couple of years ago with a foreign policy advisor, one of the, the current presidential candidates, and this advisor said, uh, we, we were having a conversation about this, and the advisor said, well, the only solution here is energy independence. Correct though that may be, it's a completely inadequate response to 
to this. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's very late in the game for energy independence, and the, the substance of the harm has been done. And we should think not only of those 3,000 plus victims on September 11th, but also the eradication of Christianity in the Middle East, of the blood of Americans uh, that was shed in Iraq, and whether it was shed by Iran, uh, proxies of Iran, or proxies of, uh, or, or terrorists funded by private individuals in the Gulf state, what difference does it make? That's American blood that ultimately had to be shed because this extremism was spread by petrol wealth. I was having a conversation with another advisor to uh, one of the, the current, one of the former candidates of this past um, election cycle. It seems like there were so many on the Republican side. Uh, that's not shocking. We're down to a few. And, um, you know, it was a, uh, it, it was a, a, a very telling conversation about, you know, that frustration about the, the nexus between our energy dependence and, and radical uh, violent extremism and just the sense of helplessness that was that was reinforced in that conversation was was very discouraging um, so the US government uh, certainly has tools um, I was going to add uh, we were talking about Iran in that discussion and I said do you know what the number two uh, revenue generating industry in Iran is and he said no and I said I don't either but I don't think it's significant <laughs> that, that nuclear program is being funded by oil revenue. All of the threats to American national security are being funded through uh, the oil revenue of people who do not share our values or our strategic interests. Okay. Uh, so, uh, and, and one last point there, uh, it's a conversation about genocide and the Christians of the Middle East, and I'm talking about the Gulf states, so I hope you'll forgive me. I, on the way to the, uh, the, uh, the IGE meeting last Tuesday about, um, about northern Iraq and the survival of Christianity there, I had a, a Palestinian driver, and we were discussing this very issue. And he said, I hope they are made to eat that oil. And I thought, what an interesting thing. He said, it'll be, mean nothing to them in five years. Um, and remember that going back to the 70s, the, the principal source of funding for the PLO was from the Arab Sunni Gulf states. So this problem has taken on different forms over the decades, but it is the same problem. Um, so first, uh, you know, what are the, why is the designation important? First, for the reasons I just mentioned. Uh, it brings to justice not only the individual soldiers, who are carrying out these atrocities, this genocide, but also uh, those uh, perpetrators and accessories. And I think that language is very significant, the perpetrators and accessories. And I think this is something that we must key on, because as we pursue the ideological and the funding sources, that's, that's certainly going to be very important. And, and all of the agencies of the US government must be directed toward um, what I think the next steps are, and that's restoring the victims to justice. Now, what does that look like? I would say, first of all, securing the Nineveh Plain region, which is, a, which is the north and eastern part of Nineveh province. And to give you some sense of this, Nineveh province is, I think, a little over 14,000 square miles. 
Armenia, by comparison, is only 11,000 square miles, so that should give you some size of the, the magnitude of Nineveh province. So when we say Nineveh, uh, the Nineveh Plain, we're talking about a subsection of Nineveh province. Nineveh province to the south and west of the Nineveh Plain, this is, this is Mosul, the second largest city in Iraq, which is uh, a mess left abandoned after the fall of Saddam, especially uh, late in the regime of Maliki uh, after President Bush left and the Sunnis there were uh, essentially the victims of divided sectarian governance. And we see the consequences of this, of course. Um, and, I, and I think there was a preference there by, by the I don't think the, many of the residents of Mosul were, they simply were not passive agents and ISIL moving in. And certainly the, um, the Iraqi military the military of the central government, uh, demonstrated uh, all the interest in <coughs> protecting Mosul, as you might expect, in 1968 from, you know, an Alabama National Guard unit deployed to put down civil unrest in Detroit. You know, it just, there really was uh, no, no concern. There was no sense of nationhood, and I think you get this when you go to Iraq. It's just a fact. There's simply, we are, we are talking about a broken nation, no sense of itself. And, and this, I think, is where the, uh, this is where I think we erred when we went into Iraq. Um, pluralistic democracy just sort of assumes um, an evolved sense of the common good, um, an evolved sense of a, a very post-tribal society with a, with, with a sense of the common good or, at a minimum, common interest. And uh, if that wasn't there in 2003, it's certainly not there Today and so I think this is a time for for radical creativity or what passes for it inside the Beltway. Um, we have to begin to be honest with ourselves and have some difficult conversations about um, about what a post ISIL Iraq is going to look like. Um, at uh, at a recent gathering of the the Atlantic Council, um, the uh, the KRG special representative uh, Bayan Abdul Rahman. Uh, addressing a panel of uh, retired generals and diplomats, said, um, after one of them had commented that the Sykes-Picot borders had, in fact, proved to be very durable, mm -hmm. she said, uh, gentlemen, this is 19th century thinking. Do you have any idea how much blood has been shed to preserve those borders? And uh, certainly Kurdish blood, but let's not forget Christian blood as well. And, uh, and my friend Marty and I were talking um, just outside about this question of the Kurds, and I think it is an important one, uh, because those who believe in sovereignty, that, that a people have a right to self-govern, who believe in sovereignty, um, those of us on the outside have a right to demand that same sovereignty, self-autonomy, um, security is, is the point I'm coming to, for the Christians. And, uh, and that's... And for the Christians, the Yazidis, all of the religious minorities and vulnerable peoples, of, especially those of the Nineveh Plain in northern Iraq. So um, recently, I, I think some of the statements from both the central government and the Kurdistan regional government have indicated that they are not only open to the notion of this region being secured. This region, by the way, which in both the Iraqi and the KRG provisional constitution um, allow for special rights and special autonomy for Christians and other, other religious minorities. Um, they have indicated that they are open to 
international observers, perhaps even international peacekeepers. I think this is a very crucial moment for those who are advocating for the rights of Christians in the Middle East and hope for the preservation of Christians and other religious minorities in Iraq to make demands of both the KRG and the central government uh, about the rights of, of Christians and the self-administration and special autonomy of Christians. The next step would be resettlement, of course, into these, re into these uh, Christian, historic Christian communities. Now, we're talking about thousands, tens of thousands of empty homes, uh, people who had to flee with little or no notice as, uh, with ISIL on their heels, going to Ankaba, which is the region just a little bit to the north and west of uh, Erbil. And if you go there, you, you, know, you see, um, I'd say, about 100,000 Christians at least in this, in this uh, Christian community of many, uh, largely of IDPs. Uh, so many of these Christians have expressed to me, have expressed to others in this room, uh, Congressman Wolf mentioned it yesterday, uh, Mr. Anderson mentioned it, have expressed a willingness to return to Nineveh. And I, I would also like to add that Christians um, I've spoken to whose grandparents were originally from Nineveh, who moved in 1933 after the massacre to, uh, in, in Nineveh to the Kabur region in Kabur River region in uh, northeastern Syria, Hazaka province, which was then overrun last spring by ISIL, who are now refugees in Beirut, have said, we don't want to go back to Hazaka province. We don't want to go back to Syria. We want to go back to the land of our ancestors. We want to go back to Nineveh, to the Nineveh plain. So think about this. There are refugees in Lebanon who are saying, we want to go back to Nineveh. What a fascinating thing. What a great opportunity this is for us to give the Christians of Iraq. After our nation, whether we, wherever we may stand uh, on, on the war or wherever we may have stood in 2003, we gave rise to harm that the Christians suffered and that many others suffered. And we have, I would say, I, I know that some may debate, you know, the duty to intervene, but I think we do have a duty to protect, especially where our conduct contributed to the danger that, that many now face. And as Carl Anderson noted yesterday, um, it's not gen genocide declaration and we move on. This is an ongoing thing. The genocide is taking place right now, and so long as the Christians are not permitted to return to their homes. This genocide is ongoing. And so we, we do have a duty. And the question, I think, before us is, what do we do? This is my, these are my thoughts. And I, and I would say that there are many others um, who are, I would say there's a growing, emerging consensus on this. Now, what this looks like, I, I don't know. But I am, as I said at the outset, something of a, a pessimist, a hopeful pessimist about, about the survival of, of Christianity, specifically uh, in the Nineveh Plain region. So, uh, security, resettlement, revitalization. This is the third point. Economic revitalization uh, will be necessary and it will need to be very swift because we have a number of people already uh, facing a very difficult choice of, you know, do I, do I leave Iraq for Europe or for the United States or Canada or Australia or do I cling to the hope that I may 
get back into my home uh, one day soon. Many who were there have, have committed to, to staying, and I, and I believe they want to. And so this piece of economic revitalization is, is key. Um, I'm, I'm proud to say that um, Stephen Hollingshead, uh, friend and, and colleague, uh, has been doing work on behalf of IDC to, to look at that very question. What can we do to uh, spark a very rapid economic revitalization for the Christians and the others who return uh, to the villages in the Nineveh Plain? And what might be done while they are still internally displaced persons? And um, I, I can't even begin to do justice to, to Stephen's comprehensive vision for, for what ought to happen. But I, I will say that he is... Uh, He's contemplating everything from microfinance and microinvestment um, to uh, revisiting current banking practices and, and has had a number of very positive meetings with people who I would say even three years ago would not have been aware that there are Christians in the Middle East and now are aware and want to do something about it. And, uh, and I think that, that speaks volumes of the, uh, about the, the many wonderful people, some in this room, some not in this room, who've committed their, um, uh, their lives or a portion thereof to this, to this work, to preserving Christianity in the Middle East. There again, uh, where I was um, once very pessimistic, I think there really is hope, and I think there are opportunities, and I think this is where, um, if one of the dangers of American institution building, and this is what we do well, we do institutions, we do very large, well run institutions that are very impersonal. We do that very well. And there are dangers when you're talking about things like uh, genocide, which is becoming a kind of meaningless term, an, an impersonal term. Uh, but one of the things we do do well is, is grow institutions. And this is where I think leveraging these institutions in the Middle East to help rebuild um, what was destroyed. Uh, I, I think there's a great opportunity before us. And I, and I don't know that a, a complete sweep of Mosul is going to be necessary for this resettlement and revitalization and the, the security portion of this to begin. I, I, I'm, I think there are different minds on this. I, I don't know that um, even a few years from now if Mosul is going to be completely cleared. I don't know that it's going to look like it. I don't know that it's ever going to. It didn't look very good in 2006 when Archbishop Rajo was kidnapped, tortured, and murdered in, the ba in a dank basement. Uh, in Mosul. So, the, I mean, this problem, these problems in Mosul did not begin in, in 2014. Uh, this is a long-term solution. I'm not optimistic that the Iraqi military can, can liberate. I'm not optimistic that the Kurds are keen to shed blood to liberate a city and then pull out of it, um, or that they, frankly, have the means or uh, the capability of the training for offensive warfare, the sort of urban warfare that's going to be necessary. Um, but just coming back to it, there are a number of groups looking at these, um, looking at these these possibilities of how to help the Christians there, and they're and they're they're leveraging ingenuity, and uh, and so and so that is something of a source of hope. Um, I think with that, I'm just going to uh, speak for a moment about the challenges that Middle East Christians face here and there, and I, and I think that they're. Uh, uh, I would say that they are uh, I think, well seven, but they're they're related, uh, and some of them are overlapping. Uh, the first would be the history and culture, and you don't ever want to suggest any sort of fatalistic um, view 
In other words, that people are trapped by their history and culture. But um, I think I, I would say um, Christopher Dawson, the great British uh, Catholic historian, uh, just sort of in passing somewhere noted that uh, we tend to think of Christianity, especially the early centuries of Christianity, as being Greek and Latin, Greek and Latin Christendom. This is how we think of it. And he said there really is a third pillar of Christendom, and it's Syriac Christianity, he called it. We, would, we, we might say Middle East Christian, uh, Middle East Christianity, Middle East Christendom. Uh, or, you know, in his time, that might have been, they might have called that Near Eastern Christianity. But Syriac Christianity is how Dawson called it. And he did note that unlike Greek and Latin Christendom, which harkened back to a pre-Christian pagan political um, era of, of empire. Um, in other words, they had, they had pre-Christian um, political traditions that, that were incorporated into um, Greek and Latin Christendom. Middle East Christianity never really had that. And so talking about the region of the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, Egypt, Syria, the Levant, Mesopotamia, Anatolia, the Christians of these regions, Greek, Monophysite, uh, Maronite, they were typically overrun by, by the great empires of the ancient world. They were used to being, in other words, a subject people um, from the the Greeks, to the Romans, to the Parthians, to the Persians, and then the Byzantines, and then the Arabs. Byzantines, of course, were Christian. But uh, the, um, and then finally, the Arabs. That by the time the, the Arab conquests of the 7th century overrun the eastern Mediterranean um, out to Mesopotamia, Anatolia, down to Egypt, they're really essentially, the religious leaders of that, of that part of the world are very much prepared to cede anything that needs to be rendered to Caesar. They're, they're just prepared to concede that, and, and they're content to render only to God. And so what happens beginning very early on, certainly by the 7th century, when we have Islam and Christianity um, occupying the same space, much of it for several centuries predominantly Christian, um, places like Christian, uh, places like Syria, excuse me, were, uh, uh, I, I think, 40% Christian to 50% Christian as of, as of just half a century ago. So, um, but, but the Christians, I, but I think that that moment when the Christians more or less conceded the political realm started a, a pattern in motion that is still with us to this day. And um, I guess I, I, I would say that that maybe strikes an American a little bit odd that religious leaders would be coming to represent the political interests of, of a people, which is what happened in 2014 when we had the, the patriarchs coming out of the Middle East. And it was, a, it was historic, and it was, a, I think, the first moment of its kind since the Council of Florence. At the same time, um, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, how could this be? Why would this be? Uh, where are the political leaders? And, uh, of course, this is very uncomfortable. I don't, I don't want to delve into this too much. There's, there's the Baathist exception, exception with Michel Aflach. But for the most part, frankly, that, that was not 
I, I, I don't think that was necessarily a Christian. Um, I mean, that, that was definitely a secular movement, and and I don't know that that has favored the Christians over the long run. Indeed, many of the Christians uh, I talk to who've been uh, victims of brutal Baptist regimes will tell you um, that that's uh, certainly not what one hopes the even the architects had in mind. So, so I guess what I, the, the greater point is that uh, there isn't an independent political culture that developed among Christians in the Middle East. There isn't that willingness to engage. And we see that to this day in Syria, where a significant number of Christians on the ground are perfectly willing to cede their, their voice to a regime that is essentially discredited worldwide. Now, not for me to judge them. And my heart goes out to them, and what a terrible captive place that must be. I don't think anyone in this room would trade places with a Christian in Syria, and so I think we dare not judge. However, uh, looking at it from 50,000 feet, or perhaps in the context of 2,000 years, I think it's safe to say that the absence of an independent political culture is uh, certainly not ideal. Now, where I do see that developing, and I'm, I am optimistic, is in, is in Lebanon, and I think the Christians of Egypt, Iraq, and Syria, um, however imperfect, Lebanese politics is, and it certainly is, there is access there to uh, freedom of speech and uh, an opportunity to observe freedom of speech and parliamentary democracy in a way that doesn't, just simply does not exist elsewhere. And I would also note um, that Lebanon is a very small country, and it has been plagued by its own civil war, but it has resisted for five years the possibility of slipping into civil war. But the fact that Lebanon is small um, shouldn't really give us uh, we, 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 we shouldn't dismiss it for that reason. On the contrary, I think what's beginning to emerge across the Middle East as these nation states, especially Iraq and Syria, are falling apart are, is the fact of local regional governance. I heard someone in the Middle East, a very thoughtful gentleman, say what's coming in, uh, about in the, with the collapse of these false nation states is the rise of the city-state. And it's beginning to look something more like what existed in Europe, and I thought that was a fascinating observation. Uh, I can't claim credit for it myself. Um, quickly, uh, demography, demography is certainly a challenge. Uh, we've looked at the, uh, uh, the, the, the twin problems of the exodus of Christians and the, the comparable birth rates of, of Christians, and, uh, and the prognosis there is not necessarily encouraging, and I think this is another reason why we should, we should look at regional and special autonomy. Um, the, the, the third point would be the, um, uh, what uh, a Middle East Christian advocate and a Syrian called the, uh, the dialectic. We were sitting in a room on Capitol Hill and he said the biggest problem we face is the, uh, the dialectic and everyone in the room just sort of glazed, glazed over and I thought well that's interesting, he's spot on. Um, and, and his point was that the Christians of the Middle East among the American foreign policy establishment are not uh, regarded sympathetically because institutional Christianity in the West has traditionally been identified with the oppressor class. Um, and this, of course, is Hegel's dialectic of uh, uh, Aaron Shaft and Connect Shaft, I think, lordship and bondage. But the, the church is, um, has historically been, uh, been identified in the West as part of the oppressor class. And this, uh, this is an unfortunate reality of... Uh, 
many uh, in the foreign policy establishment coming from lead institutions and, and being prepared to identify uh, the Christians of that region. I mean, you think about the terrible irony there. Uh, and I think the gentleman who made this point was precisely correct, but you think about the terrible irony of, uh, of the victims being identified, the oppressed being identified with the oppressor class. The, uh, the, next, uh, the next two points really are related. Disunity, which I think is the biggest obstacle to effective advocacy. And I, and I also want to add that this is something that's being addressed, I think, just organically and naturally on its own with people working, organizations and individuals working more closely together, very encouraged by that. Um, and, uh, and that disunity is, a, is a kind of an extension of, of tribalism, which is a little bit of an uncomfortable subject, but one that, that really can't, um, kind of can't be avoided. Um, I, I was recently um, reviewing reviewing an article I was writing, and it, and it occurred to me, I thought, okay, well, I think Jesus of Nazareth was the first post-tribal <coughs> prophet-level you know, teacher of the Abrahamic faiths. And, um, and I thought, well, that's, that's an interesting notion. I think I'll test this out. So last week I was talking to, uh, to Chris Seipel, and uh, Chris Seipel of IGE. He's a, he's a really thoughtful, wonderful man who came up with the... Um, I think he came up with the concept of what he calls relational diplomacy, which essentially means sitting down in the Middle East and letting uh, a dozen grown men in a council scream at you for American foreign policy for about an hour uh, before you get a word in edgeways. Louis, you've seen, you've had occasion to see me get yelled at in the Middle East, yeah. And then absorbing that and building trust um, by, by telling them, you know, what, what you think. And uh, so I, was, I wanted to bounce this idea of, you know, tribalism off Chris Seipel and... Uh, and he said, oh, yeah, John 4. And uh, it was one of those moments, I think, that a lot of Catholics have, you know, <laughs> where he says, John 4. And I, and I just sort of vaguely nodded, you know, and uh, thinking, I hope that that's the Samaritan woman. Yeah. And uh, you know, there should have been something in Westphalia that, uh, you know, made memorizing scripture... Uh, Catholics, giving Catholics permission to opt out of memorizing scripture passages, but uh, but Chris is a, Chris is a fascinating guy, and he said yes, this this notion of post-tribalism is uh, is an important part of our work, and now we're excited to say we're co-authoring a, a piece on it. But uh, um, that really is a very important challenge, and it has to be overcome. And in the West, I think we face the, the challenge of cultural tribalism, and in the Middle East, I think there's still a lot of ethno-religious Tribalism, and I and I uh, hope that the, the Christians of the region will realize, and the Christians of the West will, will realize that tribalism is fundamentally incompatible with with Christian belief, and and uh, and hopefully we can move beyond it. Um, and then uh, finally, there's the, the problem of inverse proportionality, uh, which I think is a big cultural uh, barrier between Middle East and uh, Western Christians. And, and by inverse proportionality, what I mean is about five percent of the Middle East, maybe, approximately, is uh, evangelical, and about 5% of uh, America would be orthodox. And those numbers would be, you know, as, as you go from the Middle East to the West, you see these numbers switch, where we have a, a plurality of evangelicals in, in the West, and then Ameri and Catholics would make up the next greater portion, and, um, and very few Orthodox, and, and in the Middle East, the Orthodox constitute uh, a majority, slight majority, I believe, of the Christians of the Middle East. So there's a, there's a lot, it's not just language, it's not just culture, uh, it's, 
its custom, its liturgy. And, uh, and so uh, a number of evangelical leaders, I'm happy to say, are, are taking steps to, to help narrow that culture gap. And I think that that is going to be, um, overcoming that's going to be a, a, a great, going to give Christians a great opportunity for a greater voice in this culture. So um, I'll just conclude by, um, by saying it's, uh, it's a real honor to be here at the Westminster Institute. I hope I didn't drag on too long and that you'll, uh, and that there are time for, for some questions. Okay. legal brief to the report uh, in an unfootnoted passage which struck me because everything else in the legal brief is footnoted this passage is not. There was discussion of the jizya, the poll yeah. tax for Christians being a substitutionary tax for military service for Christians as was referenced by Bob Isra, your uh, legal advisor who signed on to the legal brief at the press conference at the National Press Club on the release of the report. Where did that idea come from that the jizya is merely a substitutionary sort of similar to like the Civil War experience here in America that you know you have the bonus jumpers and so forth that you could I could pay my way out of the draft of the Union Army? Um, that was the idea that Bob Destron was for. That's a great question, and, and, I, and I'm afraid I think you'd have to ask Bob. I'm not familiar with uh, with that, and I couldn't answer that question. I thought that the the uh, the Jizya portion of the report was very significant, and uh, in, in some meetings with uh, members of our government, uh, I heard people at different points dismiss, um, you know, it was sort of the, oh, mere crimes against humanity, you know, tendency that you saw. Oh, well, the Christians, it's really not that bad. They can pay a tax. Well, uh, the report went to great lengths, I think, to, to, to make the case that this is not what's going on. This is not the historic, traditional Jizya tax that's being uh, levied against Christians. Um, in fact, when, when 3,000 Arab Muslim warriors conquered all of Byzantine-held Egypt in, I think, the year 642, they were able to do so because, of there, was, because there was a great deal of support among the Monophysite Christians of, of Egypt. And once they uh, conquered Egypt, the, um, the caliph was not keen to convert anyone to Christianity because he was raking in all this money. And there isn't evidence uh, historically that it was anything like what we're seeing um, in Iraq and Syria, um, in Raqqa and Mosul, uh, at the hands of, of the Islamic State. I am afraid I can't answer your, your question. I just don't have, I don't have, uh, I, I can, um, I'd be happy to reach out to Bob Destro or put you in touch with him uh, if you'd like to follow up with him. But I don't, I don't feel as though... Um, I'm competent to answer that specific question because, I don't, yeah, that's one area I just don't know enough about. Yeah, uh, yeah thank you, sir. Uh, thank you. Drew, thank you for your report. It's a fantastic report. Thank you. I'd like to ask a question about what you said about Mosul and the Mosul campaign. So if I heard you correctly, you said that uh, the Nineveh plane could be secured and there could be economic revitalization even without taking the second largest city of Iraq, so that's, you know, that's, there's a million people there at least, there's uh, at least 4,000, maybe 4,000 or more Islamists as fighters. You're talking about Mosul. In Mosul. Mosul. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's in excess of 3 million, the population. No, it's, it's 2 million. Okay, it's 2 million. Are okay. you sure? Absolutely. It used to be 2 million. Yeah. 
least well, maybe maybe many left. Million. Okay, yeah. I've, I've heard. Well, let's say one. Let's say it is one million. Some some from Syria. Oh, okay. Probably so the, the, the the original people who left. Uh, okay. Okay. Some they so brought in from Syria. Okay. Yeah. It's a big sprawling city. It's huge. Yeah. It's big universities there. So, by the way, I used to live in Kirkuk, and so I want everyone okay. to know that Nineveh Plain is one of the most attractive places in the world to live. This is an ancient wheat-growing area. This is, wheat has been growing there for 6,000 years. It's great land. It's got water with the Tigris River, and as, as the way will tell you, it's sitting on top of a lake of oil. There's yeah, a tremendous oil. amount of petroleum, the richest petroleum fields in Iraq are in the north, and they go right into Mosul. Mm -hmm. So this is precious land, and also it's empty. It, as the way we'll tell you, a lot of people used to live there, they're gone. Mm -hmm. So there's a tremendous amount of real estate that's available to be resettled, and it's great for truck farming. And so the, you were in the State Department. So the agricultural experts that uh, I worked with in Baghdad said, this place could be fantastic for mm -hmm. truck farming, just like they do in Israel. So my question to you is, we're talking about economic revitalization, but we know that it would be very dangerous and very you know, inhibiting for people to try to live in an area that's only 20 miles away from a country that's infested by killers who have hundreds of suicide bombers who just love to go kill farmers or kill industrialists. How do you see the repopulation of the Nineveh Plain without taking most of I, I think it's a great question. I think, I think first you have um, a number of people who are going. I, I think the, the question is, is, is open as to whether or not the uh, Islamic State will substantially reconstitute in North Africa and Libya. And, and so, it, so the dwindling number of ISIS fighters will make it easy for, um, well, let's be honest, it's going to be an American-led coalition to sweep um, to sweep Mosul, to sweep Mosul. I, I don't, I don't know that I see that necessarily in the future. I don't know that I could be banked on. What I would say um, is, having been to the front lines and seeing something very much approximating the Western Front in World War One, where you have a thousand-kilometer front trenches, fixed defensive positions, and no tanks um, to penetrate the lines. I, I think it was April or May of last year. In, in Telescaf, ISIL, in the middle of the night, about three o'clock in the morning, packed up uh, a truck with explosives, drove it through. You know, the, so their tactics are very primitive. They're trying to pierce the line. The Kurds surged and uh, repelled the attack. And I and I think at some point even even ISIS got tired of the suicide bombing approach, and uh, and it didn't prove effective. So I guess what I'm saying is you have a, you have a fixed defensive position that can't be penetrated. I don't I don't see. Um, ISIL coming into possession of tanks anytime soon. My point is simply that this is a defensive position that, that can be held. Uh, and so what is the threat at that point to a city like, uh, like Al-Kosh? The threat is mortar or artillery. I think that's something that can be neutralized or lived with. Um, and I realize that's, a, that's a, you're talking about a tremendous risk for somebody who has to move back you know, under that threat. But... Um, The simple reality is it's, uh, it's not sustainable. The IDP situation is, is not sustainable. And I, um, I, I think that there, there are, I'm, I'm aware that there are different views on this. And I, to I completely understand and respect anybody who would not want to move back into a city that was still within mortar range of, of, uh, of Mosul. But I don't 
think it's a realistic possibility to assume that ISIL is going to be moving north and east of Mosul anytime in the near future. I, I, I simply don't see that. And so I think what we're talking about is um, a crisis of confidence um, in the people uh, that, that they can go home and that it's safe to go home. Um, again, I feel very, um, I don't feel quite uh, comfortable telling people that it's safe to go back. I would never say that, but I think we will see that there are many who are willing to go back. And even when I was in Tel Aviv, you see people at their homes driving out to their homes in Tel Aviv. Well, you can you can see the ISIS-occupied villages with the with the, you know your own eyes there, just a mile or two south on the road to Mosul. So, I, I hope I answered that that question, Doug. Sure. Okay. Yes. You uh, I'm referring to last Tuesday's event at IGE. Um, I was not on the call, so I'm afraid I, I don't know what you're what you're referencing there. I do know that there were some upset Assyrians in the room, and I think that that's good. The voice voice your opinions. Um, I, I think that that's, and, and I think that IGE would say the same thing, that what they want to hear is Assyrians. I saw Assyrians and Kurds um, having some respectful but but uh, but intense conversations, and I think that's very healthy, and frankly, I think we as Americans have a duty to, especially as the Kurds move toward independence, and I would never say that, that they should be denied their independence, but I would say um, if, if sovereignty is something that, that Kurds are entitled to, then Christians are entitled to it as well. And I, and I think that what the Christians, the request of Christians for um, greater self-governance and self-administration, I think those requests are perfectly reasonable. Because uh, one of the things we've seen, I think Armenia is a good example of, of a people who had to, um, they had no help from the outside and they had to uh, forge their own, reforge their own nation. Um, out of Ottoman Turkey. And had they not done so at the Battle of Sardarabad in, in 1918, I think it was May 1918, um, there would be no Armenia. So, so these things can, can be very, uh, very touch and go. I hope I answered your question, which is to say I'm unable to answer your question. That's, that's twice now. So <laughs> let's, keep, let's keep going. Please. Kanan Makia was here two weeks ago, and the Kurdish question arose. Mm. And his opinion is that the, 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 he thinks the Kurds are smart enough to understand how well, they know how well they've been doing for the last 20 years, first of all, under U.S. protection for much of that time. And that were they to declare independence, all hell would break loose with. Syria, Turkey, Iran, etc., yeah. and, and that it would not behoove them to unilaterally move in that direction. Yeah. What do you think of that? Well, I think well, a few things have happened just in recent years. Um, the Kobani siege was a very pivotal moment, and I say that because the. The Kurds of Iraqi Kurdistan are now watching what's happening in Syrian Kurdistan with great interest and a sense of nationalism and a sense of a united people. And I don't know that that existed five years ago. And so, so this is a so the nationalism is a very 
strong movement in Kurdistan right now, and it's only the, the government that is, that is resisting it. If, if, if this were to go to a vote, I would say, you know, 98, 99% of the Kurds would vote for independence, and I think that's um, very telling. Probably only civil servants could be <laughs> convinced to vote against it. I think that's how popular it is, and that, that is the surge toward nationalism. Uh, with respect to the, the Christian question there, uh, my hope is that the KRG sees something that didn't exist five or even three years ago in the United States, and that's uh, a highly mobilized and motivated advocacy, uh, series of advocacy groups on behalf of the Christians of the Middle East. And while we, we certainly, um, last night, for example, uh, the KRG hosted a special event on the Hill um, recognizing the great historic ties between uh, the Jewish people and the Kurdish people. And their representative there was a woman. I think in most instances what we would say is a special representative who's a, who's a woman coming from the Muslim world um, holding a special event um, to recognize the contributions of, of Jews in, within the framework of Kurdish culture is not insignificant. I mean, to, to borrow a phrase from Margaret Thatcher, these are people we can do business with. However, what we have to be clear about is that this, this Christian advocacy apparatus has to be very clear that any support, um, I mean, we should be neutral on the question of Kurdish independence because it doesn't directly touch uh, the survival of Christianity in Iraq. But we're going to be watching very closely how the rights of Christians are protected and their willingness to in turn honor Article 35 of their own provisional constitution, which calls for special autonomy for Christians. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. And I, and I think this is what we, this is the standard um, we have to hold the Kurds to with respect to the Christians. There's a, there's a great deal of distrust there, and I, and I don't, um, how can I possibly tell a, an Assyrian Christian he has no right to be skeptical of being governed by the Kurds when uh, there, there's significant evidence on the ground that um, they were they were left, you know, to to, to rot when ISIL came. So by by Peshmerga forces. Now the Peshmerga are nothing like centralized or unified, right? I mean, it's just um, that that's that's something. that's a helpful projection to the West, uh, but they're governed by more or less by political parties. There is increasing centralization, and there is a movement toward independence, but. Uh, but they're trying to project more orderliness, I think, than, than exists uh, in reality. I hope I answered that question, Bob. Okay. And, yes? Well, um, being at the um, house, uh, you were there with the Tom Latros uh, yes. Human Rights Commission. Uh, the one phrase that struck me from Ambassador Saperstein was he talked about we're trying to seek a pluralistic democratic Iraq. So I, how are these ideas and policy circles working of, of Kurdish independence or autonomy or independent or autonomous zone? I think the autonomous zone is somewhat uh, consistent with the, let's call it Biden Gelb, Biden's, Joe Biden's 2006 co authored piece in the New York Times with Leslie Gelb calling for, in essence, the Dayton model to be implemented in, in Iraq. It's not calling for the breakup of Iraq. It's calling for decentralization, uh, a, a more federated governance structure, um, more regional autonomy. I think certainly a step in that direction is what's called for. Um, I, I can certainly appreciate that, that uh, Ambassador Saperstein might not be comfortable 
um, deviating from the talking points at state, but uh, um, and I uh, certainly would would agree with that. Um, this is what we, we would all love to see: uh, pluralistic uh, Iraq. But it's it's simply not the reality right now. Uh, so we and we have to deal within the framework of reality. I don't know that the U.S. government can fund a program that's going to cause Iraq to transcend sectarian and tribal violence anytime in the foreseeable future. I don't know that, I don't even know what that program would look like, you know. So let's I so I guess what I'm saying is we have to deal within the framework of of reality. And and you know, I, w I was there and, and I did hear some I thought Robbie George's remarks were wonderful of course. Um, I did hear some people discuss the limits of uh, of state action and the possibilities of NGOs, but not just but, but also how much of this means uh, engaging in civil society, and there I believe Rabbi Saperstein did talk about the importance of um, of engaging something like what Chris Seipel would advocate, relational diplomacy, really at the at the town and in the village, the individual level, to for these communities to reconcile. You know, I, I think that's that really is what's going to be what's going to be necessary. Um, I hope I answered the question. I think we're oh, okay, we're at. We're at maybe Steve, do you have a quick one? Bob and I were talking before we, we started out here, and um, I mean it was earlier. It was earlier today. We were having a conversation. And I said every conference I go to is true. True. Last week, every conversation I'm a part of, people are are moving around. Uh, it, it seems they're unable to quite put their their finger on what the problem is. And um, I think the Regensburg address hits it, um, nails it spot on. And uh, it's very rare that I would say publishing a book is courageous, but the closing of the Mo Muslim mind by Bob comes very directly to this point. What's, what we're seeing is a crisis of reason. When you read this, what you're reading about is a crisis of reason. And I, my, my own belief is that violence before it's carried out with the, uh, the wielding of a sword or the firing of a gun is first... Uh, is first a, an act of violence against reason. In other words, it's a it's a form of violence against against reason, um, and uh, and this is what we're seeing. What we're seeing is violence to reason. I, I'm not keen to jump into, um, you know, my the plausibility of your revealed religion against the plausibility of my revealed religion. I, I think um, what ought to be uh, what we ought to strive for is is a notion of common reason. And by that, what I mean is, what, what can you and I 
and the next person agreed to independent of revealed texts and revealed faith about our common humanity, and, and that, in a word, is Hellenization. So, um, so I think Bob answered that better than I possibly could. So. That was a very good Andrew, thank you very much. Uh, I want to acknowledge the presence in the room of Drew Bowling. As I mentioned, Congress Fortenberry's great role in the congressional resolution as, uh, as having introduced it, and Drew worked so hard to bring this to fruition uh, that uh, he is owed a great uh, deal of thanks, along with IDC and all the other organizations that work for this. And I should mention in that respect, our office mate here at Westminster is Barnabas Aid. And you may see in the next room the literature from Barnabas Aid and the work they have done to help persecuted Christians in the Middle East and elsewhere, and also to bring greater attention to this, and in fact, um, with Drew's help, Barnabas Aid will be presenting Congress, Congressman Fortenberry with the tens of thousands of petitions they also signed to help uh, draw attention to this the same issue as does IDC. So thank you very much for coming, 